In our study today, we're going to pick things up at the beginning of Galatians 2. The Apostle Paul is in the middle of sharing his testimony, his personal story of how the grace of God grabbed a hold of his life and completely transformed his life. And we left off with Paul living in his hometown of Tarsus in the Roman province of Cilicia. By this time, he was a believer. He had spent three years in Arabia being taught by the Lord Jesus himself and reconciling his Jewish understanding of the scriptures with the new revelation that Jesus was the Messiah. And he had now spent 11 years back in his hometown of Tarsus working a job, being single and and ministering where he could, but not with the kind of impact that we generally associate with the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Then all of a sudden, guess who shows up in Tarsus looking high and low for Paul? It's his old friend Barnabas. Barnabas. Now, Barnabas seems to have had some sort of relationship with Paul that went way way back. Easton's Bible Dictionary actually speculates that they may have been classmates under Gamaliel, the esteemed Jewish elder and teacher when they were both youths. And you might recall that when Paul made his first trip to Jerusalem, around three years after his conversion, none of the apostles wanted to meet with him because they didn't buy his conversion story. They were terrified that he was still out to persecute them. And in that situation, it was Barnabas who vouched for Paul and arranged a meeting and an introduction with Peter who then introduced Paul to James. Around 11 years later, Barnabas is sent by the Jerusalem church to oversee the church that has come up very quickly in the city of Antioch. And when he gets there, Barnabas finds that God is moving mightily, but he realizes very quickly that he needs help. The job is simply too big for him on his own. But he doesn't go back to Jerusalem to look for help. The reason is that, as we shall find out, the Jerusalem church is unsurprisingly full of Jews. They're Jewish believers who are part of a Jewish culture, and it's led by apostles that are called to reach Jews. In Antioch, there were many Gentile believers, and the Jews who were in that city were Hellenists. They were ethnically Jewish, but culturally Greek. So Barnabas knows that this is going to create some problems bringing people from Jerusalem because they're, they're not going to have any idea really how to relate to these Hellenist Jews. And in fact, there was kind of a, a little bit of a, a rough, uncomfortable relationship between the two groups because the cultural Jewish Jews would view the Hellenist Jews as kind of like sellouts, forgetting where they came from, that sort of thing. So Barnabas thinks to himself, being inspired by the Holy Spirit, he thinks, well, what about Paul? I've seen Paul minister to Jews, I've seen him minister to Gentiles, really anyone he can. He would be perfect for Antioch. So Barnabas tracks Paul down in Tarsus and brings him back with him to Antioch where Paul and Barnabas are both on the leadership team and they enjoy a season of very effective ministry together. The Holy Spirit is moving in power in Antioch and it's during that time that the Holy Spirit tells the believers in Antioch to set aside Paul and Barnabas as missionaries to go out from Antioch and plant churches all over the known world at that time. But throughout Paul's ministry, he had been dealing with this troublesome group known as the Judaizers. They were ethnic Jews 
who had infiltrated the church and were teaching a false gospel message. As we know by now, their message was, yes, you're saved by what Jesus has done, but you're also saved and your salvation is preserved by keeping the Old Testament laws, like circumcision. In other words, in order to be saved as a Christian, you gotta start living like a Jew. You need to start obeying all the Old Testament laws. And in contrast, Paul was teaching, no, you are saved by what Jesus has done. By putting your faith in him, you're not saved by anything that you do. And a group of these Judaizers who were Pharisees had made their way from Jerusalem over to Antioch and had begun teaching their false gospel message there. They also started telling the believers in Antioch that Paul was not teaching the same gospel message that they were teaching back in the home base of Christianity back in Jerusalem. And the whole issue blows up to the point where everyone in Antioch starts saying, you know what, let's, let's just send the leaders, let's send the leaders and the elders of the church to Jerusalem to meet with the apostles there and, and let's settle this whole issue of whether you have to do things like be circumcised when you become a Christian. And the story of what happened in Jerusalem on that trip is documented in Acts 15. It's worth reading on your own this week. It's almost the whole chapter and it gives you some detail and flavor of that. The meeting that unfolded in Jerusalem about these sorts of issues is known as the Jerusalem Council. And it was a critical moment in the history of Christianity. The reason that Paul's sharing his testimony in this letter to the churches in Galatia is to defend the gospel message that he's been preaching, the message that our standing before God is only made right through faith in what Jesus has done. Jesus lived a perfect life in our place. We can't live a perfect life. Jesus died the death that each of us deserved as punishment for our sins, and Jesus was raised to life again in our place. If we accept Jesus as our substitute, then right now we stand before God perfect without any sin because in the eyes of heaven, the life that Jesus lived was in our place, and every sin we committed before we put our faith in Jesus was also taken care of by Jesus, who went to the cross in our place. So we can look forward to our earthly death not being the end of us. We can look forward to being raised to life eternally as Jesus was. That's the true gospel message. That's the gospel of grace that Paul is defending in this letter. You might recall the acrostic for the word grace we mentioned last week, grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a great little bit of theology to tuck away in your mind. As they had in Antioch, the Judaizers had infiltrated a group of churches that Paul and Barnabas had planted in the province of Galatia, and they were trying to spread their false works-based gospel message. So to counter that work, Paul writes this letter, the letter of Galatians, and he includes the events of Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council because what happened there proved that Paul was a legitimate apostle and had been teaching a legitimate gospel, while in contrast, the message of the Judaizers was illegitimate, illegitimate. And it's easy to think that this Judaizers thing was just a small distraction, but it was a much bigger deal than that. We know that Judaism was the, the cradle of Christianity. Jesus was a Jew. And what Jesus did was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. Those who loved the Lord and served God were intended to simply move with Jesus from Judaism into this new entity known as the church. And some did. But Judaism was also almost the coffin of Christianity. 
The Judaizers were not some eccentric, harmless group. They weren't the cranky old men of the church who didn't like any change. They were theological, social, and political heavyweights who had significant influence. A lot of people looked up to them and admired them. And here we find a couple of decades after Paul first tangles with them, they're still causing trouble. And had the church given in to the peer pressure they were stirring up, had the apostles in Jerusalem been swayed over to their false gospel message, the true gospel of grace would have been practically lost and Christianity would have evolved into just another branch of Judaism. Now obviously the Lord wasn't going to let that happen, but for Paul the issue was real, pressing, and of incalculable importance. For Paul, the gospel was at stake. The future of the church was at stake. And so with that context, let's jump in. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Then after 14 years, so this is 14 years after Paul's first visit to the Jerusalem church, which lasted just 15 days, which we talked about back in chapter 1. 14 years after that first trip to Jerusalem and about 17 years after his conversion, Paul writes, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. Titus was one of Paul's other partners in ministry and we'll find that he was brought along in part as a test case because you see, Titus was a Gentile. In other words, Titus was not circumcised. So here's Titus, the legitimate believer. How are the apostles in Jerusalem going to react? Are they gonna demand that Titus be circumcised in order to be treated? as part of the brethren, which would indicate that the, the Jerusalem church had indeed fallen, so to speak, to the false gospel of the Judaizers? Or would the apostles in Jerusalem stand up against the Judaizers in their midst, stand by the true gospel message, and insist that Titus did not need to be circumcised in order to be a believer? Verse two, Paul says, and I went up by revelation. Would you underline I went up by revelation? The church in Antioch wanted Paul and the other leaders of their church to go to Jerusalem and sort this all out with the apostles there. But Paul says, I went up by revelation. In other words, Paul went to Jerusalem because God told him to. That's what he's saying. I don't know if Paul couldn't wait to go to Jerusalem or if he didn't want to go to Jerusalem. On the one hand, I can imagine him looking forward to being vindicated but on the other hand, I can imagine him being really ticked off that his church didn't just back him 100% and tell the Judaizers to get out of there. Whatever the case may be, the Lord told Paul, you need to make this journey. The reason, I believe, was simply to preserve the unity of the early church. Jerusalem was obviously the Christian center for Jewish believers. Antioch had quickly become the Gentile center for believers. So there was already this cultural divide that had to be sort of guarded against. There were the Jewish Christians who were culturally Jewish, then there were the Gentiles and the Hellenist Jews in Antioch. So already they're not speaking the same cultural language. And if the Jerusalem church began adopting the gospel of the Judaizers, that would have meant there would be essentially two different gospels being preached. One gospel for the Jews and another for the Gentiles, which would have opened up a massive schism between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers, the Jerusalem church and the Antioch church, with the Jerusalem church believing in a gospel that was tied to the law and the Antioch church believing a gospel that was tied to grace. We're going to find that there was no schism. 
But in order for the Antioch believers to know this, they had to make this journey. You know, when it comes to having difficult meetings where the issue or issues could be explosive or painful, we should take note of our brother Paul's example. He went to Jerusalem because God told him to. The determining factor was not Paul's personal feelings. Paul didn't make the decision based on whether or not he wanted to have the meeting. The issue was, what does the Lord want me to do? What does the Lord want me to do? And if we're honest, that's very rarely how you and I decide what difficult conversations we're going to have or not have. We tend to elevate our feelings above everything else when we make those decisions. And we make the decisions based on things like, well, they can reach out to me if they want to talk since they were in the wrong. Or, you know, I'm, I'm just not ready. And so I'm not going to have that conversation. Or, you know, I, I didn't do anything wrong. Why, why should I take the initiative? We're generally very slow to ask the Lord, what do you want me to do? We tend to let our feelings be the most exalted authority when it comes to whether or not we're going to have those difficult conversations. We avoid them because we don't want to have them. Or on the flip side, we rush into them because we're really, really fired up. Anybody ever done that before and then regretted it later? Yeah, yeah. If you're not, then you're just lying and that's okay. But I've done it many more times than I would care to admit. Many more times. And, and it never goes well because... When you rush in like that, you always have that monologue prepared in your mind, right? You've got it all laid out, exactly what you're going to say. And when we've got our monologue prepared, here's what I've found. You're going to get that monologue out. You're incapable of absorbing any new information. You're like, I put all this effort into this prepared rant. I can't just discard this. I've got to get this out. So they're talking, and all you're thinking is like, would you, would you just finish talking so I can say what I came here to say? You're not listening at all in any way. And that's how we stick our foot in our mouths and end up doing irreparable damage to very important relationships. How much better it is for us to be like Paul willing and eager to meet with people and sort things out, but waiting on the Lord for the right timing. You know, the older I get, the more I value face-to-face -face meetings with people. I get why the Holy Spirit told Paul, this is not something to be solved through the mail. This is an in-person issue. As I said, it's so easy for us to our shame to believe the worst about people, even one another. And I believe that we give the Holy Spirit so much room to move when we go to someone in person with the goal of doing what is pleasing to the Lord. When you're praying going into a meeting with another believer and you both have the Holy Spirit in you and you meet face to face, the Lord just does something almost, almost every single time. So if there's a difficult conversation that you're putting off or overly eager to get into, let me encourage you to follow Paul's example. Seek the Lord. Seek his timing. And then obey him. Obey him when the Lord tells you what to do. You'll be amazed what the outcome will be. Would you make a note of this? The wisest way to approach difficult conversations is by seeking the Lord's direction and timing. Seeking the Lord's direction and timing. Don't let your feelings be God in that decision. Let the Lord be God. So Paul went to Jerusalem because God told him to, and then we read, and communicated to them, that's the apostles in Jerusalem, 
that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. So in Jerusalem, Paul meets with the other apostles in private and compares the gospel message that he's been preaching to the gospel message they have been preaching. And it's easy for us to to read this. I I was reading up about the Greek and, and the basic summary is that Paul is just blurting this out very passionately and it's one of the rare places in Paul's writings where it's really clumsy even in the Greek. And so it's easy to read it and assume that Paul wanted to make sure he hadn't been teaching an inaccurate gospel message. But that's not at all what Paul is saying. Paul wanted to make sure that they in Jerusalem hadn't been teaching a false gospel message, namely the gospel of the Judaizers. Remember, Paul had received his gospel message directly from the Lord Jesus. So Paul was not in any doubt that the gospel he had been preaching was the right one. He was absolutely convinced. His concern was that the Jerusalem church may have fallen into teaching a false gospel message. And he knew if that was the case, it would only be a matter of time before it made its way up to Antioch and the Gentile churches in Galatia, which would just wreak havoc and undo so much of the good ministry Paul had done and destroy churches, causing them to put their faith in a gospel that was no gospel at all. That's what Paul is talking about when he's saying, I wanted to make sure that I hadn't ministered in vain and that there wasn't a false gospel being taught that was about to undo everything. That's what he's so worried about. So he shares what he's been preaching and he wants to find out what they've been preaching. Verse three, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. To Paul's great relief, the apostles in Jerusalem did not suggest or demand that Titus be circumcised. They were on the same page as Paul, preaching the same gospel as Paul, that we are saved by grace and not by works. Verse 4, and this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying this whole situation only happened because of false brethren, men who were pretending to be believers but were really out to infiltrate the church with a false gospel because as Jews, they hated the gospel of grace and freedom that we have through Jesus. They tried to get us to go back to earning salvation by obeying the Old Testament laws, but we weren't having it. We didn't put up with that false gospel for even a second because we wanted you Galatian believers to keep living in the truth. In Acts 15, it talks about when Peter gets up at the Jerusalem council and he addresses everyone who's there, including the Judaizers, and he said, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, that's new believers, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. Peter's point was that none of the Jews, none of the Judaizers' forefathers had been able to live up to the requirements of the law. None of them had been able to do it. So why were they trying to now bring new believers under that same impossible standard which everyone who ever tried to live under had failed at? We're not under that bondage anymore. We're free from the impossible requirements of the law. We're free from having to try and be saved by our works. The scriptures also tell us that we're free from having our lives run by our sin nature, what the Bible calls our flesh. We can now live based on the spirit of God that's in us and have our lives and decisions, should we choose to, 
run by God's spirit that produces life and wholeness in us. We can live free from the bondage of sin. We don't have to live as slaves to sin. And this is always where where someone's usually thinking, if we had more teenagers in the service, they would definitely be thinking, so Jeff, you're telling me I'm not saved by works. Absolutely. So you're saying I can sin and it won't affect my salvation? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That's awesome. I'm going to go sin. Well, why? The blood of Jesus doesn't save you from the natural consequences of your sin. If you choose to live in sin, you're still going to have to deal with everything that sin brings into your life. Pain, hurt, disappointment, broken relationships, insecurity, anxiety, jealousy, and on and on and on I could go. You'll still go to heaven, but you'll have an unfulfilling life down here. And you'll gain no rewards in heaven. We're free from the law, but praise God, we're also free from the power of sin. We can enjoy the freedom of not being controlled by our flesh. So don't use your freedom as an excuse to put yourself back in bondage again. To say it very theologically, it's a stupid thing to do. It's a miserable way to live your life, something we could all attest to. Verse 6, but from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me, God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. Now, now again, translating from the Greek, you can read this, and it sounds like Paul is speaking very facetiously about the other apostles in Jerusalem. But Greek scholars tell us that's not the case. What he's doing is he's actually being sarcastic toward the Judaizers by using the terms that they would use to talk about the apostles in Jerusalem. So the Judaizers would talk about the apostles in Jerusalem and they would say things like, oh, they're really something. And later on we'll see Paul say, oh, they're the pillars of the church. Those guys, the guys in Jerusalem. And so what Paul is doing is he's, taking all of those terms he's saying those guys who were you know of reputation as you like to call them and he's making fun of the Judaizers by saying hey you you know whatever term you want to call them it makes no difference because God shows favoritism to no man and then he makes this point he says and listen they didn't add anything to me again he's not bragging or boasting what he's saying is he's saying they didn't have to revise my gospel message They didn't have to update it. They didn't have to correct it. They didn't enhance my understanding of Jesus and the gospel. I already had all that information revealed to me directly, personally, by Jesus himself. And so Paul is just addressing his detractors, the Judaizers, and saying, listen, I'm an equal with them. That's the idea that he's conveying here. They viewed me as a peer, and we're going to talk more about that right now. In the next three verses, verses seven through nine, if your Bible uses the words circumcised and uncircumcised, it might make the text read a little more clearly if you understand that you can substitute the word circumcised for the word Jews and the word uncircumcised for the word Gentiles. And so for the sake of clarity, that's how I'm gonna read it to you and I rewrote it and put it on your outlines. Uh, It would read like this, but on the contrary, so Not only did the disciples in Jerusalem not have to correct my ministry in any way, but when they saw that the gospel for the Gentiles had been committed to me, as the gospel for the Jews was to Peter, 
For he, that's the Holy Spirit, who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the Jews, also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, leaders of the Jerusalem church, when they perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. So Paul says, when we met and fellowship with the apostles in Jerusalem, it became obvious to them that God had anointed me with the same spirit that he had anointed Peter with. And that God had called and anointed me to the Gentiles just as he had called and anointed Peter and the others to the Jews. You see, God had given the apostles in Jerusalem a special calling to minister to those who were ethnically Jewish. And as they met Paul, they said, well, praise God. We know that God wants the gospel to go to the Gentiles, and it's obvious to us that he has raised you, Paul, up with a special anointing to do just that, to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so this part of Paul's testimony destroyed the rumors that the Judaizers had been spreading for years. They couldn't claim that Paul was teaching a false gospel and was an illegitimate apostle when his gospel message and his apostleship had been affirmed directly by the other apostles in Jerusalem. When Paul says they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that was the culture's version of an official endorsement. It was a mark of fellowship, friendship, and partnership. This was Paul's mic drop to his detractors. There's no comeback for this. So make a note of this. The apostles in Jerusalem affirmed Paul's gospel message and his ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. They affirmed his gospel message and his ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. Now as an aside, there are some, you you might have heard this, who have put out the theory that when the disciples replaced Judas the Iscariot with Matthias in Acts chapter 1. You may have heard some will say, well, I I think they actually made a mistake because what they should have done is that they should have waited because God raised Paul up and obviously Paul was intended to be the replacement for Judas. Paul was the one meant to complete the 12. But I don't believe that to be true because of what we see in these verses. The original disciples were primarily called to the Jews while Paul was raised up to go to the Gentiles. They have completely different callings. While the Jerusalem church did plant churches outside of Judea, those churches were still heavily focused on reaching Jews. Paul's calling in ministry was distinct and different from the other apostles in Jerusalem, which is why I don't believe for a second that he was intended to be the replacement for Judas the Iscariot. Just as a side note, I saw someone the other day make a point. You know, there was among the the 70 disciples, there was the 12, then there were the 70. And among uh, the 70 was another disciple who who gets mentioned a few times. His name was also Judas. And uh, when it shows up in the Bible, it says Judas, and then in parentheses, not the Iscariot. And I saw somebody who was reading it, and they underlined this, and they said, I'm pretty confident he introduced himself this way for the rest of his life. (laughs) Judas, not the Iscariot. That's right. So Paul felt he didn't need any confirmation of his revelation of the gospel. He made that pretty clear in his writings. Paul doesn't go to Jerusalem because he's like, oh, I, I hope they endorse me. I hope they approve of me. You don't get that vibe from Paul at all. He's like, I don't need to go. 
I met Jesus Christ. I was tutored by Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't need somebody else to fill in the gaps for me. I don't have any gaps. Jesus told me everything I need to know. However, I believe that events and the Lord's instructions to Paul make it very clear that the Lord desired Paul to go to Jerusalem and have his ministry affirmed by the apostles there. Is that because the Jerusalem apostles were more important than Paul? Not, not at all. I think it's because in the New Testament era, God chose to protect doctrine through confirmation. And here's what I mean. Today, what is to stop someone from saying, you know, I just received new revelation from God. It's a new gospel. And I don't need to have it verified because it came to me straight from God. I mean, what's to stop that happening? How would we respond to that person? We'd go and check what they claim is a revelation from God against the word of God. And when we found that their message contradicted the scriptures, we would say, as Paul did, that anyone who teaches another gospel message, according to the Bible, is to be accursed, anathema. Today, we have the Bible to confirm or deny doctrines. And the church, the global church, uppercase C, sure would save herself a whole lot of trouble if she would remember that, <laughs> that we have the Bible to confirm or deny claims that people make. Just check the scriptures. God used systems of confirmation throughout the New Testament era, though. Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. That's what you call confirmation. Jesus' teaching harmonized, it lined up with all of the Old Testament scriptures. His teaching ministry was confirmed by the miracles he performed. His claim to be God was confirmed by his resurrection from the dead, which he also predicted. The resurrected Jesus was seen by the disciples and hundreds of other witnesses. The birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, where they received the anointing of the Holy Spirit, took place among a group of 120 people at the same time. And there were 3,000 people who responded to Peter's preaching that same day. The gospel message and the gospel writings upon which the early church was established were based upon the memories of the disciples who started the church together in Jerusalem. My point is that there was a plurality of witnesses who could confirm everything that was being said about Jesus including individuals' memories about Jesus' life and ministry. Over and over again in the New Testament era, the Lord has used methods of confirmation. There's a distinct difference between the way Christianity was born and all the other religions and belief systems that are based upon one person primarily receiving a revelation that nobody else received, nobody else saw, nobody else can verify or attest to. Paul personally clearly felt he didn't need to have his gospel message confirmed. But I believe God felt that Paul did, not for Paul's sake, but for the gospel's sake, because it wouldn't be good to have the precedent of one of the main apostles going out and doing a ministry based on personal private revelation that was never affirmed by anyone else. That wouldn't be a good precedent to set. And I say all that to make this point. If you want to know if a pastor or a ministry's message or doctrine is truthful, check it against the word of God. Hold it up to the light of the scriptures. If God's in it, his word will confirm it. It's that 
simple. Don't get caught up in the story of how they received their revelation. You know, I was, I was on a mountaintop and an eagle came and just perched itself on my shoulder and he, he whispered this message to me. He said, it's going to be a Shemitah year very soon. Some exciting things are going to happen. If somebody says that, somebody says, I got this amazing revelation that came to me. You can say, you know, epic story, bro. Epic. But if it doesn't line up with the scriptures, if the word doesn't confirm it, then God's not in it. It's just that simple. So make a note of this. We protect ourselves against false teaching by comparing every quote-unquote word from God to the word of God. We need to compare every alleged word from God to the word of God. And I wish I didn't still have to teach this, but I'll just tell you, it never ceases to amaze me. The number of Christians I see on social media getting Christianity mixed up with all other kinds of new ageism belief systems and self-help motivation stuff that is completely unbiblical. So whenever you hear anything spiritual, the, the litmus test is not, do I like the way that sounds? It's not, do I like the way that makes me feel? Hmm, I do, that's tasty, must be true. That's not how it works. We have the word of God. Here's what you'll realize the more mistakes you make in life. And hopefully, as we age and grow in grace and become more humble, you will realize that God put all this stuff in the Bible because we're not smart enough to discern this on our own. That's why he gave us the scriptures. He's like, you guys are gonna need help. If you trust your gut, you're gonna get yourself in a whole lot of trouble. Read the Old Testament, see what happened every time the Israelites trusted their gut. Bad stuff happened. You know, oh yeah, God's going up to get the Ten Commandments. What should we do? I don't know, let's just trust our gut. You blink and they're dancing naked, having an orgy around a golden calf in just a couple of weeks. You're like, what is going on? You know what, it, it felt good at the time. It felt right at the time, Moses. I, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you. He's like, oh man. So check the word of God. Check the word of God. Then verse 10, Paul says, they desired, so the apostles in Jerusalem, they desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. So the apostles in Jerusalem say, hey, we only ask one thing of you, Paul, remember the poor which is actually a little bit amusing to me because do you know who the poor were at this time in church history? The believers in Jerusalem. They were going through a very difficult time of famine. It was a center of Judaism and so many of them were struggling to find jobs or keep jobs. There was the famine and they were basically under economic persecution. So the apostles tell Paul, uh, hey, hey, just one more thing. You know, when you're out there ministering among the Gentiles who aren't facing financial persecution and famine, remember us, Paul, and send a check. That's what they're saying. And Paul would prove his love for the Jerusalem church by fundraising very effectively for them. And the Gentile churches would be very generous in their giving to the Jerusalem church. Paul would end up making multiple trips back to Jerusalem to deliver economic relief to the brethren there because he loved them dearly. So one of the lessons from the Jerusalem council and the ministries of the Jerusalem apostles and Paul is that different ministry flavors are a good thing, are a good thing. And I need to hear this. We need to hear this every now and then. Different ministry flavors is healthy and it's, it's biblical. 
The way they did church in Jerusalem would have looked different to the way they did church in Antioch. The cultures were different. The expressions of worship would have been different. What mattered and what still matters is that the gospel was the same. That's what mattered. All believers are one in Christ, but I don't know if you've noticed this, we're not there yet culturally. We're not all one culture yet, and that's okay. Praise God, there are different churches for different cultural needs. In fact, I think that's easily one of the most beautiful things about the gospel. Jesus saves us, and we worship him in response. How do we worship him in response? In the ways that thanks and gratitude are expressed in the cultures that we're in. We're told to sing praise to the Lord, but we're not told to only use certain instruments or sing certain styles of songs. The scriptures leave room for the cultural expression of each church's context. Church in Egypt shouldn't look like the church in Canada. Church in China shouldn't look like the church in Egypt. It should look different because they're different cultures. And the expression of thanksgiving and gratitude and worship should look different. As long as the gospel is the same, different church cultures is a good and biblical thing. Good thing. And I wish I didn't have to share this caution either, but but I have to because I've also seen people fall into this. You know, as you you dig into the scriptures, and especially if if you study deep and you study expositionally, you can get in the Old Testament and you begin discovering all the benefits of the things that are in the Old Testament law. Because you find that all the Old Testament laws were for people's benefit. They were for health benefits and marriage security and familial stability and all these sorts of things. And so it's easy as you get into the scriptures for some people to become enamored with Judaism. It just seems so spiritual, so detailed, so serious, so all in. But don't fall for it because Jesus fulfilled the law. He fulfilled it. There's a giant checkbox next to the law. One big checkbox checked off by Jesus. And as Peter said, the law couldn't save anybody. It never saved anyone. So why would we want to go back under it? The Bible tells us now that there is no Jew or Gentile. There's something new. There's the church. There's the church. And in the church there are Jews and Gentiles. We're all free from the law. We're all saved by grace in the church. This is also why, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but I'm, I'm so hesitant to say from the pulpit, this is what your daily devotional time with the Lord should look like. This is why I'm so hesitant to ever put out numbers there and say you should read this many chapters a day, you should pray for this amount of time a day, because that's, that's the path that leads to legalism. And we love it. We love it. I know that because even as I'm saying that, I I bet a good number of you were like, well, I wish you would say that, Jeff. That would be great if you could put a number on it. Because we love legalism because we're like, then I could put a check mark next to that and feel like a good person. And that's the problem with legalism. It won't make you a good person. It won't make you a good person. That's the law. The law can't make anyone good. And in fact, for a thousand years, We loved legalism so much that the Roman Catholic Church became essentially the only church in existence. And for a thousand years, this still blows my mind, for half the time since the church was established and today, for half of, more than half of all of that time, the church returned back to a works-based gospel message. Do you realize that? 
a millennium, a thousand years. To shake the church out of that took the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people and the Reformation, built on great refrains like the five solas, including sola fide, which is Latin for faith alone, faith alone. We're not saved by works. We're saved by faith alone. And they were ready to die to get back to the truth of that gospel. Everything that we do as believers is in response to what Jesus has already done for us. We don't live to earn the love of Jesus. We live for Jesus because we already have his love, no matter what. We don't put time and energy into a relationship with Jesus because we have to. We do it because we want to, just because we love him. And we found that doing life with Jesus, walking with Jesus, is the best way to live. I'm never more content, I'm never more at peace. I'm never better to live with than when I'm walking closely with Jesus. That's the best way to live, that's why I wanna do it, not because I have to, not because I'm trying to earn something, I can't earn anything. So remember that as you approach your daily time with the Lord. You can't earn anything, you can't, even if you try, you can't earn it, it's already been given to you. God's gonna bless you no matter what because you belong to him. But living and walking with Jesus is the best way to live. So with that, would you bow your head and close your eyes and let's pray together. Father, we wanna thank you so much as always for the truth of your word. And Father, I just wanna begin by asking for any among us who might have difficult conversations in our lives that we know we need to have. Father, I pray that we would approach them under your direction and your timing. That if our feelings are determining whether or not we have those conversations, how we approach them, that Lord, we would, we would pull our feelings off that throne and put you back on. And say, Lord, what do you wanna do? If you tell me to wait and stay silent, I'll stay silent. If you tell me to go and have the conversation even though I don't want to, I, I will obey you, Lord. Father, let our goal in, in every difficult conversation not be winning an argument, proving our point, or, or being vindicated. Let our goal be pleasing you. That when that conversation is done, you would be pleased with our approach, with our humility, with our willingness to listen, and our willingness to be led by you. So Father, if any of us have difficult conversations, we just submit them to you right now in the name of Jesus and pray for your direction. And Lord, we want to commit to obey you in response, Lord. And then Father, we ask, as always, that you would help us to abide in you. Father, I pray that you would release anyone in this room from any type of guilt they may be feeling about any part of their walk with you, any sense of obligation to any law, big or small, Father, there's no guilt, there's no shame, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All there is for us, Lord, are blessings in walking in relationship with you, blessings in trusting you, blessings in serving you. And so, Father, we, we simply want to walk experiencing the best life that we can, not because we need to earn anything. You've given it to us generously. And you don't have any plans on taking it away from us, Lord. We're secure in your hands. So Father, I pray even in this coming time of prayer and worship, Lord, that, that we would just enjoy you.
we would enjoy your presence, enjoy the reality that you love us, enjoy the truth that we are loved by you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for always being faithful. Thank you for taking care of us, Jesus. Heavenly Father, you're a good Father. You're perfect in every way. And you take good care of your children. Thank you, Father. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.